I want to talk about, I guess we should start. So tonight I'm going to talk about uh, what is called in the tradition wise effort. What kind of effort does it take to do what we're doing here? It's not sometimes so obvious. How many of you today have found uh, at times it was really hard? Really hard. Let's hear it. Let's see the hands. Well, yeah, almost everybody. At one point or another, the first few days, it can be really hard. What was hard? Your energy was low, or you felt tremendous resistance to being here. It's like that at the beginning. Because, you know, for one thing, we're entering a world, when we come on retreat, it's almost like we're coming into a foreign culture here, a very strange culture that has its own customs and own, its own, you know, uh, ways, like walking slowly, not talking, not much stimulation, it's a different culture, it's a different speed, it's a different level of activity, and it takes a while to adjust energetically to this way of being. Most of us are uh, living at a fast pace with lots of stimulation and a lot going on all the time. And when all of that is taken away, it's a little bit like being an addict with uh, the drug being taken away. You know, we're in withdrawal here for the first few days. So it takes a while for this quality of uh, energy to find its balance. Today we may have discovered how difficult it is to be present. Anybody here have some difficulty just being here? Just being, even wanting to be here? Like, why should I pay attention? I mean, this is like, why? Why am I doing this? What's the big deal about being present? Our habits of distraction and not being here are very strong, aren't they? And you could even say that this is the first insight of meditation practice how much we want to check out, how much we want to check out, how much we don't want to be here. There's a poem that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote called Froglessness. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness. When a frog is put on the center of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There's something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. It is difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging. 
but you and I also both have frog nature in us. (laughs) That is why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness, is its name. (laughs) This is what we are up against, this jumping, distracted, leaping mind. It has a mind of its own. So, what kind of effort, in the face of this, what kind of effort is needed to keep us here, to be here, to not be leaping and distracting ourselves endlessly? What kind of effort is actually being asked of us to keep coming back over and over again, as we are endlessly reminding you to, to return to the breathing when you've already seen quite enough of your breath, right? <laughs> I've, uh, you've seen one breath, you've seen them all, you know. <laughs> Why should I go back there? I know what it's like. I don't need to look at it once more. Or to come back to the asana. It might be painful, it might be sore, it might be aching. Well, that's no fun. There must be something better to pay attention to. But nevertheless, we are encouraged in this practice to make a particular kind of effort, what the Buddha called wise effort, sometimes called right effort or skillful effort. This quality of effort we know is important because it appears on a number of the different Buddhist lists. The seven factors of enlightenment, it appears on that list. It appears on the lists of the perfections of the Buddha. It appears on the lists of the spiritual faculties and the Eightfold Path. So we get that that keeps showing up, like, wow, you know, effort, I guess it's important. And we sort of know that without any effort, obviously nothing would happen. Without any effort, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have made the effort to come. The Buddha spoke about three kinds of effort. And I'm going to mention them briefly and then go back into them in uh, more detail a little later on. But the three kinds of effort he spoke about are firstly what what is called inspired effort. The effort that often occurs at the beginning of our practice, we hear a teacher or a teaching, or we're driving somewhere and we, we, we hear a talk on our, our iPod or whatever thing we've got going in our car. Some of us still have cassette tapes, some of us have CDs, some of us have iPods. It's all over the place, but nevertheless, we hear a teaching and it's like, wow, that's really amazing. And you feel some kind of energy or some kind of interest in pursuing that understanding. Our effort is ignited by a new sense of possibility. The second kind of effort he talked about is applied effort. Once we have stepped into a class or a retreat where the meditation is actually being taught, we have a chance to apply it. How to apply this practice to different Uh, experiences, both on the cushion and off the cushion. How do we apply effort to noticing the breath? How do we apply effort to washing the dishes at home or talking to our child or negotiating with our boss? 
we begin to see that different kinds of effort may be needed in different situations. And then the third kind of effort he spoke about is what is called sustained effort. The effort that is needed actually for the long haul of our life, for the long haul of our spiritual journey. Because our journey, our life, has many ups and downs. What kind of effort is needed over the long haul? We will look at these. But first, I'd like to invite you to do a little exercise. I'd like to invite you to practice a little bit of the kind of effort that we need. And I'm going to invite you to make a fist with either hand. And I'd like you to um, tighten as much as you can. Really make a strong fist and feel, notice the sensations that get produced by doing this. What do you feel in, as the sensations in your hand? And you can even speak them aloud. What do you notice? Tension, irritation, heat. What else? Pressure, contraction. What? Pain. What other sensations? Throbbing, shaking. Right. Okay, very good, very good noticing. And now, to the count of ten, I'm going to ask you to very slowly release the tight fist, release the pressure. And I'm going to count one to ten, and I want you to take that full length of time to do that. One, two, Keep noticing the sensations. Three, four, five, six, seven. What are you noticing? Relief. What else? Stiff. Tingling. Nine. Ten. Keep noticing. Keep noticing. Okay, what kind of effort was needed to be present for that little exercise? What kind of effort was needed, huh? Sustained effort. What was the quality of effort needed? Curious, good. Concentrated, good. Physical. Yes, we were focusing on the sensations in the physical experience. What else? Interest. Interest, yes. What else? Observing. Huh? Observing. Observing. Close attention. All these. Very good. Okay, now we're going to do another little piece of this exercise, which is right now, I'd like you to close your eyes and go someplace in your body where it feels really comfortable. 
may be hard for you to imagine at this point of the day, but if you look, you will find a place somewhere in your body where you feel very easy, very comfortable, very relaxed, where it's actually quite pleasant. It can be just one part of your body. Notice the sensations there. You might speak them aloud. What sensations of ease or comfort do you notice? Relaxed. Warmth. Warmth. Softness. Softness. Light. Light. Openness. And let your attention rest there. Keep your attention there. Allow your attention to explore fully these sensations. Notice the effect on your mind of feeling pleasant, easy, comfortable sensations. Okay, you can open your eyes now. We can ask the same question. What kind of effort is needed to be present in this instance? Was it a different kind of effort or the same? Different. Was different? Yeah, more of a light effort. More of a light effort. Interesting. Who says the same? Yes? How is it the same? How would you say it's the same? Putting attention to it, exactly. I would say it's the same. I'd like to offer the suggestion that the kind of effort is actually, even though one experience is simulating or actually becoming a a somewhat unpleasant experience of sensation, and the other is meant to Uh, be a pleasant experience of sensation, the kind of effort to be present is the same. What is spoken about in uh, in the Buddhist teachings is are the qualities of relaxation and alertness. That the kind of effort that we need to bring to whatever is appearing in our experience, whatever kinds of sensations, whatever kinds of uh, emotions, of which we will talk about in a few days, whatever kinds of experiences we are having, the kind of effort that's required is both one of great alertness, and many of you mentioned this, a quality of close attention, right? And a quality of being open, being relaxed, not being resistant, not being contracted against the experience, but actually, even though it could be unpleasant, there's still a quality of openness. There's still a quality of relaxation, you could say. So 
accompanying us in our mindfulness, the quality of effort that's needed over and over again is this quality of both great attention, great alertness, interest, curiosity, as many of you said, and also a kind of openness, which is a kind of allowing of the experience to be as it is, not interfering with the experience, not judging the experience, not demanding that the experience go away or be different, right? But that capacity to hold it as it is with this openness, with this willingness to be present that is both alert and relaxed. Does that make sense? Okay. This is the, uh, this is the kind of effort that mindfulness is pointing to. So I'd like to give an example of this that the Buddha taught. He was teaching this kind of uh, approach once, and he held up a, a twisted ball of threads that were all tangled up together. And he said, if you want to untangle this tangle, what is the best way to do it? Do you pull on it? Do you yank on it to try to, you know, make it loosen up? Where would that lead? And everybody said, well, no, that wouldn't be so productive. You just would make, a, make it worse. You know, when you get impatient and <clears throat> it doesn't work. Instead, what's needed is this delicate, close, patient attention that's willing to get in there and see how the threads have gotten tangled, right? To see how to separate them, how to pull them apart very gently. This is how you untangle a knot. <clears throat> and in all, many of his teachings, he gave this as the, the, uh, as the model for how to deal with our own internal knots. You could say that when we have a problem, when there's a, when there's a, a, a problem where of maybe tension in our shoulders and certain thoughts that run through our minds, certain obsessive thoughts, and then emotions that arise of worry or uh, a concern of some kind, we can see, oh, this is my own tangle. <coughs> this is a way that I have gotten myself tangled in a knot. And in the same way, we can apply this understanding of what's needed in this situation from us, what kind of effort we need to make to untangle ourselves. And that is a lot of what mindfulness practice manages or or is suggested to do, untangling the ways that we have gotten ourselves tangled up. So how do we do this? One, we slow down, just as we're doing in sitting here. You notice this is not a speedy process. We're not multitasking here, are we? 
it may feel like that sometimes because it's a lot to keep track of your mind and blah, 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 blah. but basically we're offering you the space to slow it down to see how the thinking and the the contraction in the body and the emotions are all kind of playing a part and creating a sense of I've got this problem and I want to not have this problem. So we might think, well, I'll just pretend it's not here. I'll think kind thoughts and it will go away. And we know that that does not actually work, right? So instead we see, oh, there's another way that I might work with this. I might begin to shine the light of mindfulness on this tangle in a very patient and close way and begin to separate out, oh, this is an emotion, this is a a thought pattern related to this, and this is the tension that arises when I get into that. And just the seeing of that, this tangle begins to loosen. It begins to lose its hold on us. We begin to see the actual nature of thinking, of emotions and the body, is that it's always in a process of change. It's fluid. And when we allow it to reveal its actual nature, it loosens. It, it's not as solid or permanent as we sometimes have the illusion that it is when we're thinking about it or trying to strategize how to get rid of it. So that's the effort of mindfulness, this ability to bring this curious, alert, open attention to our direct experience. Whether we're doing mindfulness of the body or whether we're bringing attention to our thinking or our emotions, as we'll be talking more about later in the week, it's the same effort that's required. Now, at the beginning of my practice, I didn't know about any of this, and I thought it—I thought spiritual practice was about having really dramatic spiritual experiences. That's what I was interested in. I wasn't—I don't think any kind of these teachings would have appealed to me at all. I had to go in search of something really, you know, kind of dramatic. So what happened was. I mean, I wouldn't have said that to myself, but looking back, I can see that's what my mind was imagining. So I had a friend in, Lo- in Los Angeles. This was, wow, mid-70s, I think. I had a friend in Los Angeles who was a friend of Leonard Cohen. And Leonard told her about this amazing Zen master that he was studying with at a, a center called Mount Baldy which is outside of L.A., and uh, an authentic Japanese Zen master, Suzaki Roshi. And why didn't we go on a seven-day uh, retreat? And she said, let's do it together. We'll have such a blast, you know. And we thought, <laughs> we thought it would you know, it'd be like going to summer camp together or something. We would just have this amazing time. And so we packed up our little suitcases and off we went. 
clueless, completely and utterly clueless as to what we were getting into. And what we were getting into was what I call now Zen boot camp because it was a very rigorous form of practice. It still is a very rigorous form of practice uh, where the schedule went something like this. We woke up at three in the morning. No, no choice about that. If you weren't in the chanting hall by 3.30, they would come and pull you out of your, your bed. And uh, so we, three o'clock up, dash to the chanting hall. 3.30 in the morning, we're chanting the Heart Sutra in Japanese to a beat of a drum really fast. Bum, 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 bum. That's a great way to wake up. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. That's over. Then you run for your first interview of the day with the Roshi. First interview of the day at 4, 4 a.m. You have not yet had your coffee or your tea or anything like that. No, no, no. You are fresh. You are bright-eyed. You are <laughs> anyway, they teach you how to run in there, do a bow, and then meet the Roshi. Well, I had never met him, so I dashed in. I was excited. Meet him at four in the morning. Okay, hello, how are you? <laughs> he said this thing to me, which was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. He said, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? Well, nobody in my whole life had ever asked me such a question. I had no idea what the man was talking about, really. I mean, he, I heard the words, but that was about it. So I think I said something like, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I was just completely clueless as to what was expected of me. So he rings the bell and I'm gone, because that's failure. Ring the bell, go. <laughs> I had to do that four times a day. I had to rush in there and be completely humiliated <laughs> four times a day. <laughs> oh. And in between, we got to sit in the zendo, very cold, very cold, barefoot, no shawls, no little mounds of pillows. <laughs> like, <laughs> you had your little spot, your little pillow, that's it. And uh, there was a guy in the zendo, if you, you know, sniffled, no sniffling. He would shout, no sniffling. They would come with a stick and hit you. <laughs> I think we had one little break during the day um, after lunch where you could do something bold like take a shower or go for a walk. But other than that, you were with the group until 10 at night. It was very, the posture was very formal, very specific, arms, thumbs touching, eyes, tongue, everything had to be completely lined up. Well, this went on for some days. <laughs> and then I had my, what I call my Zen nervous breakdown. <laughs> Because it was just way more than I could handle. Plus, I had no idea what was being asked of me. I didn't understand anything about awakening or what these questions were about. I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. But I was going to do it anyway. So I would sit there, and then one day I just started weeping uncontrollably in the zendo, and they shouted at me, stop crying, stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. I was a, a mess. 
weeping, weeping, weeping. So they carried me out. <laughs> and they took me into a little room next to the Zendo, and they came and they said, oh, well, you know, dear, you've probably had enough. This was, you know, very good. Maybe it's time to go home. And the minute they said that, I was like, no, I'm not leaving. I am finishing this. It was kind of my stubbornness and my pride, actually, that saw me through to the end. And after I'd had a good cry, I was a bit more relaxed. I felt a little more, you know, relaxed. Because until that moment, I hadn't had one moment of relaxation. I was just so busy trying to keep up with what was expected. So what basically the point of all this story is that I was in way over my head. What was being expected of me was way more than what I could possibly uh, drum up in terms of effort. The, the effort required was way beyond me. So the Buddha spoke about effort, and it's important to understand, part of this story is that it's so important to understand what our effort is in the service of. What are we here to do? What is this about? I didn't know. So my pride took over. My ego just said, I'm going to do this no matter what. But what's important is to know that the Buddha taught effort in the service of awakening, awakening our hearts and minds to the truth of reality. And that's no small task, but that is what we are doing. This is what effort is meant to do. It is meant to strengthen the wholesome qualities of mind and heart, qualities such as generosity, patience, kindness, tolerance, forgiveness, all those kinds of qualities, and to diminish the impact of what are called the unwholesome qualities, which we all know all too well, the, the resentment, the anger, the impatience, the the uh, irritation, the jealousy, all those things that create suffering for ourselves and usually some kind of suffering for those around us. So effort is in the service of something very, very noble, very rare, very um, amazing in this world. So we, we practice, basically here at Spirit Rock, we, we teach two streams of practice, and they're both in the service of this kind of awakening, but they work differently. The first kind of practice is that which we are doing on this retreat of mindful awareness, of bringing this quality of non-judging, non-interfering attention into every moment of our experience. Whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or doing our asana or doing our yogi job or eating or walking, bringing this quality of mindful attention into our experience. These moments of mindfulness, it is said, are moments of purification. What does that mean? That means something actually really important, that every moment of mindfulness is a moment when greed is not, ap is not present, when aversion is not present, 
when confusion is not present. We are clear, we are present, we are connected. That's an amazing moment. We may think it seems like nothing, but actually it's quite significant. The other stream of practice that we teach here is the stream of the Brahma Viharas, or the cultivation of qualities of love, qualities of open-heartedness, qualities of metta, or kindness, the quality of compassion, loving in the face of suffering, the, the desire to care and help those who are suffering, the quality of joy, or mudita, taking joy in the delights of life, whether they're your joys or somebody else's joys. And then the quality of equanimity, that supreme balance of mind that can ride the waves of life without getting caught in the ups or the downs. Now, these habits of mind are not usual. They don't just happen spontaneously or very rarely. And even if they do happen spontaneously, they still need to be practiced. They take time. It takes effort for these qualities to be cultivated. So let me go back over these three kinds of effort. The first, this inspired effort that I spoke about, where we hear something or read something or meet a teacher or a being who inspires us, who gives us a sense of some kind of potential, a new vision of possibility in our lives. This happened for me um, when I met a Tibetan Lama who had recently arrived in Berkeley, and this was some 30-some years ago. and he, he basically was a refugee, but I saw a person who was radiating love and joy and compassion and had no quality of victim in, about him at all. He was very much a, a, a radiant being. And I went to a, a teaching he gave, and his English wasn't all that good, but at some point... And this was a life-changing moment, actually. It inspired my, my whole practice, actually. Was There was a moment when somebody asked him a question about compassion. And he turned to answer. And all I can say was, in that moment, compassion I experienced as a living force in the room. It went right into my heart. And bam, something opened. And I had never known that compassion was a living force. I had heard the words in Sunday school or in church, but they had always seemed, it had always seemed just like a word, like you would say, be nice or be polite or be compassionate. It was sort of in that category. I didn't know that it was a living quality that a person could manifest. But in that moment, I knew that. And I got completely inspired to learn more about the Buddhist teachings out of that that one experience. So 
Inspiration can happen in many different ways. It's very unexpected how it comes. It may be from giving birth. It may come from being with somebody who's dying. It may come from, as I said before, reading or hearing something. Or It can come in all these different ways. The Dharma itself, is a source of ongoing inspiration. I think that those of you who practice for some time, those of you here who have been doing practice, why do you come back? I mean, there must be something in the way of inspiration that keeps you tuning, hearing, wanting to hear the Dharma, wanting to practice, wanting to see how it is in your own heart, in your own mind. It's also true that this kind of effort that gets us motivated can come out of a crisis, can come out of being at our wit's end. Um, There's a story that I like to tell from Sister Chan Kong, who worked with Thich Nhat Hanh during the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, they they would go into villages that had been bombed and try to help the villagers rebuild and reestablish their their lives. And so she tells the story in this book about um, how in one village that it had been bombed a number of times, and the fourth time the village had been bombed and buildings had been destroyed, she finally just lost it. And she got really angry, really distraught, really upset. And she says, when you are angry and get carried away by your, angry, by your anger, this is not good practice. So she said, in this practice, we have to restore the clearness of our mind. So I release the, tra- I release the tension I was feeling and tried to dwell only in the present. And at that moment, I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of all the bombing. There was a little flower still blooming in the midst of the ruin, and I was truly moved. I could see, oh, the little flower has done her best. Why not me? So I tried to look deeper. And I saw there were quite a few angels in the midst of that ruin, many bodhisattvas, including that little flower. I had to do my best to go in that direction. I saw that life is not only cruelty and confusion and ignorance, but life also has many heartful, wonderful people who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that so much beauty in life is waving to you and saying hello to you. You only need to see one little flower. At the one, at the right moment, one little something, one little flower can inspire our own effort. Isn't that amazing? The second kind of effort, applied effort, applying what we are hearing. And this is the Dharma, you know, doesn't 
we don't do PowerPoint here. We don't do, you know, multimedia. We, we do this old-fashioned thing of just, te- you know, telling, instructing, teaching the Dharma. Maybe it's not enough. I don't know. We'll see in the future if this rema- remains. But this has been the time-honored tradition of how these teachings get transmitted through teachers speaking the Dharma, people listening, and then as best as we can, we try to apply what we hear, apply the understanding of what we hear to our own experience. So it's not just theoretical. It becomes part of our own living experience, trying to understand how does this apply to what I see when I come back and I notice my mind and I notice the breath. That's applying, that's effort in the service of applying what we hear. And in this application, we learn something important about how to relate to this present moment. You know, in the culture these days, we uh, hear a lot about mindfulness, and you might hear about how it brings you into the present, and how wonderful it is to be in the present. It's a little bit misleading, because the present sometimes is very joyful, but you can't guarantee that, right? It's sometimes very challenging to be present, as you have seen today. So um, what's so important about the present if it's not just bliss and joy all the time? What's important about the present is that this is where truth resides. The truth of our living experience of reality itself can only be found in the present. It can't be found in remembering the past, or in thinking about the future. Over and over again, we're instructed to bring a certain kind of attention, this alert, relaxed attention to the present, to see what is here. We think we know what is here, but we don't really. We haven't yet discovered the potential of what the present can reveal to us. In our mindfulness practice, we learn that instead of having to resist what comes, we can actually be curious about it. We can actually be open to it. We can be patient instead of agitated around it. We can be compassionate instead of condemning ourselves for the same old story we're telling ourselves. We can be spacious and allowing instead of trying to control our experience or get rid of it. This can only happen, this change of attitude can only happen in the present. When we do this, we are stretching our capacity. Our effort is is growing, our capacity to be with ourselves and our experience is being uh, worked out, you could say. We're beginning to lift the heavier weights.
Okay, the fourth, the third kind of effort is that of sustaining effort, the kind of effort that is needed in the long run. And it has a paradoxical quality to it. There is a paradoxical nature in, of all effort. Suzuki Roshi said, everything is perfect as it is and there's a lot of room for improvement. Mm -hmm. In the kind of effort that we need in the long run, we begin to appreciate this paradox because we see that both are true. How to live in harmony with the fact that, yes, ultimately everything as it is has a perfection that goes beyond reason. At the same time, on the relative level where we live our human lives, there is always room for improvement. We may look at ourselves after we've made some effort and feel clearly this is not perfect. I had hoped for much better results, much more improvement, and I'm not getting them. So we try harder or longer and still nothing happens. This is a deeper lesson. This is a stage where we are asked to open ourselves to a larger truth, that we see that we, as a ego that wants to be in control of everything, cannot dominate life. We cannot control outcomes. Nothing speaks more about our belief in control than our desire to control the results of our efforts. We live in a very achievement-oriented culture. We try hard to get the results we think are the right results, to achieve our goals, to become the right sort of person, and we're fed this message from the time we're very young. We hold ourselves accountable for the results. Even so, our efforts are often, or sometimes, in vain. Rumi has a poem about this that he calls, Who Makes These Changes? Who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. Good advice. As we age, I, I, as I'm having a, quite a direct experience of these days, our lack of control becomes more apparent. Life has its way with us, whether we like it or not. And especially in relation to things which have previously seemed quite reliable, like our memory. Here's a poem by Billy Collins called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. 
as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. <laughs> Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye. You watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your brain. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L as far as you can recall, <laughs> well on your own way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Are we in charge? Are we in charge? I remember a time in my practice, it was some years ago actually, there, there was a phase where I, I felt like I had come to a dead end. It felt like I had been on a treasure hunt and a lot of the clues had worked, the instructions, the teachings. I had you know, found some real treasures along the way and then suddenly everything, no more clues. Dead end, nothing happening, stuck. That was it. I thought, well, this, you know, doubt, doubt in myself arose, doubt in the teachers, doubt in the teachings, the whole thing, maybe I'm making this all up, maybe like, you know, like that. It was a long, fallow period, and you don't have a lot of choice in those kinds of periods. It's not like nothing you do seems to have an impact, but something stays present, something stays open, something stays hopeful. So with that kind of wider lens, that kind of more spacious allowing of things, I think some kind of deeper surrender was actually happening all along. And out of that came the next piece eventually, in its own time, in its own way. This is a big piece of learning, that we are not in charge in the way we imagine we are. And like a flower growing, there is an exquisite intelligence at work which has its own timing. You can't go out to your garden and speed up the growth of your carrots. It just won't work. There's a saying in the Zen tradition, sitting silently, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Some kind of wisdom comes out of these such periods of trusting that by cultivating the right conditions, by continuing to practice mindfulness, by staying open, by staying curious, Spring will come, and it does. 
We can't say how, we can't say when. So effort has many different phases, different qualities uh, as we journey through this terrain of mindfulness. I'd like to suggest that the effort we make in practice is a noble effort. It awakens in us inner resources that may have been dormant for many years. And the container of a retreat such as this provides the ideal conditions for nourishing and strengthening our effort. When you think about your practice, whether you're at the beginning or whether you're well along in your practice, what kind of effort do you sense you need? Do you need to inspire your effort, to activate it? Are you learning how to apply your effort to your, the various kinds of mindfulness practice, to the asana practice? Where's your effort weak? Are you needing to sustain your effort through a hard patch with trust that things are unfolding as they need to? Wherever you are, however you are exploring effort, the aim is the same, to keep turning towards the present moment, not in order to arrive somewhere in the future, not to use the present as a means to some future end, but to inhabit the present more and more fully. Because the present is where we connect with the truth as a living experience. The Buddha called this habit of turning towards the present, our one fortunate attachment. He advised us to be very attached to this interest in and willingness to explore this present moment. So that's what we will continue doing. So thank you very much for your attention tonight. Let's sit together just for a few moments. Lao Tzu, from the Tao Te Ching, said, This is it. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. And it has already turned out. 
At the center of your being, you have the answer. There is no need to run outside for better seeing. Abide at the center of your being. For the more you leave it, the less you learn. about um, 25 minutes for a walking period and then we'll come back at 9 o'clock for the last sitting of the day and we'll do some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.